Hello and welcome to episode one of season three, Honor of Kings, here on Hanging on His Words. I'm your host, Ken Heidebrecht. Thank you so much for joining us for this first episode of our third season. I'm joined by my awesome, incredible, and very intelligent co-host, Sean Griffin. Hey, Ken. Thanks for having me. This is good, man. I'm excited to be back for season three. Yes, it's it's been quite a while. We've had a little hiatus here, but we're back in action. Our schedules have aligned, and I think this is what we're going to do every Sunday. We're going to try every Sunday for the next several Sundays and uh, see how that goes. But yeah, it's, I'm, I'm really excited to get back into this show. I know a lot of people have enjoyed it. We have two seasons so far. Both of those seasons are on Kingdom in Context, Sean's channel. So if you guys aren't familiar, I'm sure a lot of you are. But if you aren't, why don't you go head over to Kingdom in Context and subscribe to Sean's channel and check out the, the playlist for Honor of Kings where we have two of our previous seasons um, for your viewing pleasure. So, yeah. Yeah, man, it's exciting. And if, if you guys, if this is your first time to see Honor of Kings, just remember the whole point of this is that we're going to see what we're, we generically call the hidden books of the Bible, but some people may call these the apocryphals or the pseudepigraphals or even the deuterocanonical books. These are books that we we found out were either used to be in our Bibles and have been removed over time or that were put in other Bibles around the world, but were never put into the American Bibles. So we actually like to dig into those, compare them to the American Bible and make see if anything lines up. And then we also do some historical research about them, basically seeing if there's any validity to these other books and why were they not put in our book or why were they removed from our Bible? Um, we don't claim that the American Bible is the end all be all of collection of scriptures. Um, so we see that there are much older books that we found out like last year, um, books like the Book of Jubilees that were never put in the American Bible, but they've been in other Bibles for 2000 years. So this is a part of our pursuit, part of our quest is we're testing the hidden books of the Bible and um, things that we some we would call them the majority of these books that we're testing. We call them scriptures. But then sometimes we're going to run across a book that we might not consider scriptures. Is that right, Ken? That is right. Absolutely. And we don't want to be biased by only, you know, showing you the audience, you know, things that we consider to be on par with the rest of the scriptures. So, um, yeah, we we plan plans for this coming season to to mix things up, try. Maybe many people haven't really read or still or maybe have heard other people teaching from them and aren't exactly sure whether or not it's, you know, anything legitimate. So. John, I believe that it's wise to kind of test other books out there that, you know, some teachers might be pulling doctrine from or, or referring to to help support their theories. And uh, yeah, it's just been on our heart to get to, to some of those books for this season and possibly the next season as well. So but as yeah. a whole, this show has, has Sean, this show has just been um, received very well. I've had some really good reviews from people who uh, grew up with the traditional canon of the 66, the Protestant canon, um, and have realized well, what are these other books that are in other canons? And, and they start to, to look into these, you know, these, uh, these other books and they're afraid sometimes, sometimes, um, they don't know where they, uh, help them out and, and aid them in, in seeing, well, does this stuff line up with the rest of the scriptures? And, and they ask the same questions that we ask on the show constantly. Does it line up with the foundation of the 66 that's in our Protestant canons? And um, like, like I said, you refer to the first two episodes or two seasons of Honor Kings. You'll see that we've we've covered several chapters from these books 
And, uh, and the whole premise of this is to help you, the viewer, ask these questions, get some answers, hopefully, but ultimately seek the Father in prayer and um, do your due diligence with regards to these texts because some of them are dangerous and <laughs> many of them are very good and they're good for teaching and wisdom and all that. So, but some of them can lead, yeah. yeah, some of them really lead you astray. Yes. Yeah. And that's why one of the, one of the criteria that we try to hold these books to is the Deuteronomy 13 test. And, and the two concepts within Deuteronomy 13, speaking about a prophet, someone that is leading you away from obedience to God, that's Yahweh. And then also someone that has maybe a dreamer of dreams or has some sort of prophecy and they declare something that it doesn't come to pass. So these books sometimes can have those elements in there as well. And that's what we look for as well. So we really thank you for joining us. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so this, uh, do you want to jump right into chapter one? Yeah, I say we do. I think the uh, the goal of this show, brothers and sisters, is to keep this close to an hour. I know it's hard. It's hard to do that without you know getting into too much depth because some of you really crave the the longer episodes, and others just have attention spans that last fifteen minutes. <laughs> so yeah. we're gonna try to keep it around an hour. And Sean, I think. This season, because we're doing it live on on my channel here at Hanging His Words, we're gonna ask some questions at the end. Is that the, the plan still? Yeah, we can we can fill some questions uh, at the end. So, as always, try to hold your questions till the end, and then because we're gonna go through some chapters first of the actual text, and then we're going to try to fill some questions. Put them in all capitalization so that we can see them easily, and then answer them. You have a better chance. But uh, the first book, guys, that we're going to look at is the first book of Adam and Eve. That's what we're going to look at this this episode. Done, so, done, done. There it is. <laughs> first book of Adam and Eve. Sounds yeah. awesome, right? Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. Um, in fact, you know, Ken, I found out that um, there are, this is not, you know, the first book of Adam and Eve is broken up into actual four sections, but most people only know about the first two sections. So we're going to look at the first section and we're going to cover in this episode, probably about 10 different chapters, but we're going to, we're going to have to do it uh, fairly quickly so that we can actually cover them. Um, but as always, we're going to, we're going to chew them apart like we do every other book. So, Sorry. all right, brother, check it out. This is chapter one. You take the first chapter. Yeah, sure. I can read it. Okay. On the third day, God planted the garden in the east of the earth on the border of the world eastward, beyond which, towards the sun rising, one finds nothing but water that encompasses the whole world and reaches unto the borders of heaven. And to the north of the garden, there is a sea of water, clear and pure to the taste, like unto nothing else, so that through the clearness thereof, one may look into the depths of the earth. And when a man washes himself in it, becomes clean of the cleanness thereof and white of its whiteness even if he were dark. And God created that sea of his own good pleasure, for he knew what would come of the man he should make, so that after he had left the garden, on account of his transgression, men should be born in the earth, from among whom righteous ones should die, whose souls God would raise at the last day, when they should return to their flesh, should bathe in the water of that sea, and all of them repent of their sins. But when God made Adam go out of the garden, he did not place him on the border of it northward, lest he should draw near to the sea of water, and he and Eve wash themselves in it, be cleansed from their sins, forget the transgression they had committed, and be no longer reminded of it in the thought of their punishment. Then again, as to the southern side of the garden, 
God was not pleased to let Adam dwell there, because when the wind blew from the north, it would bring him, on that southern side, the delicious smell of the trees of the garden. Wherefore God did not put Adam there, lest he should smell the sweet smell of those trees, forget his transgression, and find consolation for what he had done. Take delight in the smell of the trees, and not be cleansed from his transgression. Again also, because God is merciful and of great pity, and governs all things in a way he alone knows, he made our father Adam dwell in the western border of the garden, because on that side the earth is very broad. And God commanded him to dwell there, dwell there in a cave in a rock. The cave of the garden. All right, brother. All right. We got some interesting That's, uh, stuff some here. Interesting stuff there, Sean. It truly is. It truly is. In fact, what, what I've went ahead and did is uh I just highlighted a couple of places for us to discuss um things that stuck out to me immediately. And the first one is the very first sentence. On the third day, God planted the garden. And I do see this paralleled in, I think it's uh, Second Esdras and also the Book of Jubilees, yep. but it's not something that's mentioned in Genesis, and it's not something that's um, really detailed in the American canon of 66 books. Yes, absolutely. It's in Jubilees chapter 2, yep. um, and as you said, Second Esdras as well, which, yeah. which is interesting. When, yep. Obviously, the, the writer of this particular book had that concept understood, mm -hmm. so... So far, yeah. sounds okay. Yeah, because you and I both acknowledge Jubilees and Second Ezra's as, as pretty legit books. I mean, they line up in so many different theological and historical ways. Um, in fact, Second Ezra's used to be in the American Bibles. And so it's interesting that there is a, a, a first point of parallel right there. But what really strikes my, strikes my eye is it says, on the border of the world eastward, beyond which toward the sun rising, one finds nothing but water. That encompasses the whole world and reaches onto the borders of heaven. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting description to throw in there because my mind thinks, well, first of all, on reaching this thing reaches onto the borders of heaven. We know that heaven is just the name given to the firmament. So it means that it's really far, yeah. like to the corner of the earth, right? Essentially. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. Because it, it definitely seems to be describing a, a biblical cosmology which seems seems right for a book that was uh, so the, uh, the oldest manuscript they can find of it dates back to the 6th century AD. So it seems right that they would have that worldview, that biblical cosmology. Right. It's not describing a ball in space. It's describing an enclosed firmament, enclosed. That's the word heaven that's being used. That's the borders being described, is that if the, the firmament was in, enclosing uh, the circle of the earth and that and the, the land of the earth would be encompassed at like a circle, being encompassed with waters, so that, that definitely is paralleling biblical cosmology. But what's interesting is that's where the Garden of Eden's placed. And I think there's other channels I, I've had in the past few years, Ken, since I started my channel. I've had so many people send me video links to um, a channel that's out there that they do a whole video series on the Garden of Eden being in the Philippines. Have you seen yeah. that before? I have, yes. Yeah. I have, yeah. And there's some and, good teachings on that channel for sure. Yeah. And I think this may be where they get that. Cause I've never seen that description so that anyone could draw that kind of conclusion about the original location of the garden being in the Philippines. I've never seen that type of description any, in any other book before. Have you? Yeah. Nor have I, nor have I. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's like, this could no, be where they're getting it. So we got a bit of a glitch there. Is, can you, can you hear me pretty good? I can hear you well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you well. There's a bit of a, okay. Sorry. Yeah, man, yeah, I, so I don't know. It, 
it would make sense that um, that channel would would pull information from a book like this and draw the conclusions that they come to in their videos from this type of a book for sure. Yeah. Does the does the the bottom passage in verse three it says when a man washes himself in it becomes clean of the cleanest thereof and and white of its whiteness even if you were dark. What is that? What do you think when when you read that? Um, it's hard to say honestly. Right. It, it's I'm not 100 percent sure how to fully understand what that's trying to communicate there, but um, possibly cleanse you of your you know the, the flesh that you're made of um, to the point where when we come to the next chapters, you have this brightness that they, they say that man had at the beginning. Um, it might be alluding to that. I'm not sure. What do you think? I think I'm going to go ahead and go to the next part of this first chapter. Cause I think it's, it, they expound upon that idea about this supposed sea, this, this clear water that was North of the, of, according to this book, the North of the location of the garden. And as a result of that, this is where they could, go and bathe after they're resurrected, as you see in the first yellow highlighted area, whose souls God would raise at the last day when they should return to their flesh and they should bathe in the water of that sea and all that, and all of them repent of their sins. So this is something that I really struggle with, not just the, the sequence of events, they seem to be backwards, but also yeah. the theological implications that, after these people are resurrected on the last day, which is something Yeshua referenced in John 5, that then they repent of their sins. And that just seems a little bit strange to me. What do you, what do you think about that? No, I agree too. I, when I came across this uh, part of chapter one, I, I had to pause and think, well, okay, first of all, they were acknowledging that God is going to be raising people at the last day, which means they, they understood that the Bible does teach a resurrection of sorts, but then that they should return to their flesh. I'm not sure what they're trying to communicate there. If it's the same type of flesh that, you know, that Adam, I guess, had before he sinned, if they're promoting that idea, or if it's actual human flesh like we have right now. But it, the, I guess the more disturbing part was the should bathe in the water of that sea, as you said, and all of them repent of their sins. That That is that is the order of operations is, is a little backwards with that particular. Yeah, because uh, this is after they've died and resurrected. And then it's saying this is where they would go to to bathe. And it, it doesn't seem to be uh, past tense. It seems to be present tense that uh, while they bathe in this water, they're repenting of their sins after they're resurrected. And then it goes on to expound in, in, in the verse 5, lest he should draw near to the sea of water and he and Eve wash themselves in it and be cleansed from their sins. Because he, he's even, the, the writer is even paralleling that this concept that is taking place for those who are considered righteous ones that are raised on the last day and then go to this, this water and bathe in it, that this same pool of water, he, God didn't want Adam and Eve to go to it and be right. cleansed of their sins. And that's just, that's very interesting because that's not, I haven't seen that anywhere in the canon of 66. I see that Yeshua raises us on the last day uh, in the resurrection. He does that through his priesthood. And then once he raises us, that's literally him taking sin from us forever though yeah, yeah you know yeah and and our sins are blotted out of the books right that, that they're recorded in at that juncture right when we have the as you said like the resurrected body we have the new circumcised hearts we enter into the new covenant at that juncture as well and we are no longer able to transgress anything so the point of you know repenting of your sins 
in a post-resurrected body doesn't that doesn't align with the promises of of the hope to come for us yeah and then further on in verse six through nine in the same chapter uh, he says wherefore god did not put adam there speaking about now he's talking about the west side of the garden that they were just or excuse me the southern side that they were expelled from god didn't want to put him there either he says lest he should smell the sweet smell of those trees and forget his transgression and find consolation for what he had done and take delight in the smell of the trees and not be cleansed from his transgression so this is one part i didn't quite understand from the actual text and maybe we'll get to it in later chapters but i he's expelled from the garden because of his transgression the father doesn't want him to smell these trees i mean according to this narrative it's saying the father doesn't want him to smell these trees south of the garden because if he forgets and finds consolation for what he had done then he wouldn't be cleansed from his transgression which i'm not exactly sure it's not because he doesn't find cleansing for his transgression after he's expelled anyway yeah it's you yeah. know what i mean so yeah it, things seem wonky here the like i said before the order of operations it's it's weird i don't i don't see how that part of the text aligns with what actually took place when adam and eve you know broke the commandment and then were expelled yeah. from the garden immediately yeah after that so yeah, because we, I mean, as far as transgression is sin, and that's, you know, First John 2, 3, we, we had this idea of sin is transgression of the law. And obviously Adam transgressed the law that was given to him in the garden about not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So therefore he's in transgression, but he doesn't get cleansed from that. Um, not neither by this lake that's on the north side, nor by being expelled to the south side and smelling some good trees. I guess what I'm trying to say is, What's interesting is there's there's very little explanation of these big theological words that are being used. Yeah. And it, that's it the seems, part that sticks out weird. It, it seems like they're tying things that are actually taught in terms of eschatology and biblical cosmology. They're tying certain facets of that into these weird, out of place, out of order um assertions that they put into the text and that's where it's tricky that's where in my opinion um you know when we test books such as this one and you guys will obviously you'll see we're already having slight doubts about some of the things that are mentioned in these texts when you're testing these the telltale sign of a, a really good trickster <laughs> is that the person knows just enough to put something into a text that it, it validates the conclusions and the theology that it might be teaching but to the untrained eye you know they would think well yeah this must be true it's talking about a lot of these things that i'm familiar with but as sean and i are hopefully displaying to you um it looks like a lot of the texts are out of order and they're mixing and mashing things together that um don't align with the actual timeline of events that have happened in our protestant canons of 66 that i've seen so far yeah, I, unfortunately, I'm agreeing with you, but let's keep going, right? Yeah. Um, anything else in the first chapter you want to mention? Um, what do we got here? I think I just had for the first chapter, uh, you know, Jubilees 2, which, and Ezra's where it talks about the Garden of Eden in Eden. In yeah. In, in Eden, which is a place that's just... Uh, point of, of mention there, but now isn't you know and let me see if i can pull this up real quick but i'm pretty sure that in you know in genesis 2 
We have yeah, two way. Yeah. We have uh, I don't know why um, my internet is going so slow today, brother. I apologize. It hasn't been doing this until we just started. So that's just of the way course. it goes, right? Yeah. Um, it's been perfectly fine for days and days until we just started, but uh, now it's super slow. But I was just going to bring up in Genesis 2.8, though, you have the Garden of Eden. It's a land that the garden is set down in. And that's, I, th I always feel like that's something really important that people should take a grasp on, you know, is that um, this is the Lord God planted, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Um, and and I understand that this could be where the book of first book of Adam and Eve is maybe getting this idea that, that instead of just saying toward the east, they're saying it's like way out towards the edge of the world toward the east um, near the firmament where it firmament yeah. comes down and en encompasses the waters. But yet it says that this garden was toward the east in Eden, which is a geographical territory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and that's, that's something that I'd like to expound upon in, in subsequent chapters, because as we're going to see, like there's, there's different land, uh masses that the father created and named them differently and as you're saying we need to understand that eden was the name of a massive land and the mm -hmm. father planted a garden in eden and it's just called the garden of eden but it's yeah. in eden in a land not that it itself is this garden of eden only you know what i mean yeah absolutely yeah yep. yeah I, I i didn't realize that probably man for years in my life yeah, I just synonymously thought, oh, the Garden of Eden is just the garden. And there was, you know, but it's actually two different concepts. There's a garden that was put inside of a territory of land called Eden. So, all right, I'm going to bring up chapter two and we'll take a quick look at this. If I, there we go. So here in chapter two, verse one through five, it says, but when our father Adam and Eve went out of the garden, they trod the ground on their feet, not knowing that, not knowing they were treading. And when they came to the opening of the gate of the garden and saw the broad earth spread before them, covered with stones, large and small, and with sand, they feared and trembled and fell on their faces from the fear that came upon them, and they were as dead. Because, whereas they had hitherto been in the garden land, beautifully planted with all manner of trees, they now saw themselves in a strange land, which they knew not and had never seen. And because at that time they were filled with the grace of a bright nature, they had not, they had hearts not, excuse me. They had not hearts turned toward earthly things. Therefore, God had pity on them. And when he saw them fallen before the gate of the garden, he sent his word unto Father Adam and Eve and raised them from their fallen state. And then verse six. Uh, well, that's it. That's the, I guess the only two. That's the only five verses in chapter two. It's a small chapter. Yeah, it is very small. It's a small chapter. Yeah. Okay. So basically, I, that, brother. Yeah, yeah. I just pointed out, and if you see anything else that uh, that you want to talk about in this particular passage, but I just pointed out that it says, and because at that time they were filled with the grace of a bright nature, they had not hearts turned toward earthly things. And this is the beginning of this phraseology that we see more through this book that, mm -hmm. that starts to talk about how they were filled with the bright nature. And I've heard people take this, and, the, and even this book gives you strong inclination that it's trying to tell you that this, the bright nature is more than just a good disposition. It's more than just a, a righteous inclination, that it's actually a glow on their flesh. Yes, yes, it, it does. It, it paints this picture of Adam and Eve having a, 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 I guess, 
transcendent body than the one that uh, we currently occupy right now. And, and that was part of the punishment is that they lost this, this bright nature, this whatever it was that set apart human flesh from whatever their, you know, the author of this book is claiming they actually had. And I don't see that anywhere in the book Genesis and Jubilees um, right. at all. That's right. Yeah. We don't see that mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. When Paul's referencing Adam, uh, we don't see that when Yeshua and Matthew 19 is referencing Adam, um, Adam and, you know, male and female, he made them in the beginning. I mean, we, and just because it doesn't mention it doesn't mean that this book can not have extra details. We do see extra details in other books that are not in the American Bible. Uh, we, we've seen those before already in the previous two seasons, Ken. It's where this particular book is about to take this concept in the future. And we're going to see it just, I think, in chapter four, five and six. But but we'll yeah. keep going here. And well, um, there is there is a couple of verses I wanted to just touch on real quick before we do okay. that, Sean, where, sure. it's, you know, it's talking about how um, they went out of the garden and they trod the ground on their feet, not knowing where they're treading. And they came to the opening of the gate. They saw the broader spread before them, covered with stones, large and small with sand. They feared and trembled and fell on their faces from the fear. Um because they had just been in this green garden land, beautifully planted with all manner of cheese, and now they're kind of outside of it. And just how the the writer is painting the outside areas of the garden makes me think like, have they not considered what Genesis and Jubilees talk about with regards to when the father created everything, he said it was good. Everything was, you know, Adam and Eve, the initial charge was for them to be fruitful and multiply, right? Um, they're to... to Take dominion over all the creatures under heaven, over the cattle of all the earth. And mm -hmm. they were this, you know, subdue the earth and spread out all over it. So right. from my understanding, and I could be wrong. My understanding is that initially Adam and Eve were, were mandated with the task of taking control of the earth and creating progeny that would essentially populate the known earth outside of the garden as well. And it was all good. All of it was good. Um, obviously, the garden was better. You know, this was where the father uh, dwelt, the son, uh, son, angels, et cetera, et cetera. But I just, I, I don't agree with the text in, in First Adam and Eve there where it's talking about how it was like this barren, nasty, scary land outside. And it's like, you know what I mean? It just, I, yeah. that doesn't line up with how I, I read Genesis chapter one, Jubilee chapter two and three. Um, yeah, where the outside land was, was nice too, right? And That's and, right. The big and, part, Sean, for me, sorry, the big part for me was Adam and Eve were outside of the of the Garden of Eden initially, right? When they were created according to Jubilees, yes. they were created in the land called Elda, and they lived, yeah. they dwelt out there for several days before being placed in the garden. So it's not like they had never been outside the garden at any time before that, especially if exactly. you, you, know, you trust and I do. So, yeah. Yeah, I pulled Genesis up on the screen for the viewer to see. This is chapter... Uh, Three, verse 23 when Adam and Eve are getting kicked out in Genesis it even affirms that idea it says therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken so he was created outside of the garden and as Jubilees explains he spent 40 days outside of the garden before he was taken into it according to the law of God and Eve spent 80 days outside of the garden before she was taken in so yeah that they shouldn't be surprised like the narrative that we're seeing in this particular book is that they're surprised um, but they shouldn't be surprised because yeah, exactly. they they have already seen outside the garden, uh, according They've to other texts, even according to Genesis. It and it's it's a it's a good place according to the Father. Uh, yeah. Right, right. 
So yeah, guys. I, everyone in the comments. I apologize, everyone in the comments. Uh, for whatever reason, we have a bad internet connection today. I don't know why. Uh, there's nothing I can do to fix it, nor can. So uh, thank, thanks for bearing with us. And uh, just pray for us to have a better internet connection because it was working fine until we decided to hit live. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course, right? All right. So let me uh, let me go to the next chapter and I'll let you take it, brother. Sure. God said to Adam, I have ordained on this earth days and years, and you and your seed shall dwell and walk in it until the days and years are fulfilled, when I shall send the word that created you and against which you have transgressed, the word that made you come out of the garden and that raised you when you were fallen. Yeah, the word that will again save you when the five days and a half are fulfilled. But when Adam heard these words from God and of the great five days and a half, he did not understand the meaning of them. Adam was thinking that there would be five, but five days and a half for him to the end of the world. And Adam wept and prayed God to explain it to him. Then God in his mercy for Adam. Oh, oh Sean, are you there, buddy? Hello. Okay. Yeah, the uh, the screen switched to a couple different texts there. Um, Sorry, I'm not sure what happened. Yeah, so, okay. Then God in his mercy for Adam, who was made after his own image and similitude, explained to him that these were 5,500 years. And how one would then come and save him and his seed. But God had before that made this covenant with our father Adam in the same terms, ere he came out of the garden, when he was by the tree whereof Eve took the fruit and gave it to him to eat. And as much as when our father Adam came out of the garden, he passed by that tree and saw how God had then changed the appearance of it into another form and how it withered. And as Adam went to it, he feared, trembled, and fell down. But God in his mercy lifted him up and then made this covenant with him. And again, when Adam was by the gate of the garden and saw the cherub with the sword of flashing fire in his hand, and the cherub grew angry and frowned at him, both Adam and Eve became afraid of him and thought he meant to put them to death. So they fell on their faces and trembled with fear. But he had pity on them and showed them mercy. And turning from them, went up to heaven and prayed unto the Lord and said, Lord, you did send me to watch at the gate of the garden with a sword of fire. But when your servants, Adam and Eve, saw me, they fell on their faces and were as dead. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do to these servants? Then God had pity on them and showed them mercy and sent his angel to keep the garden. And the word of the Lord came unto Adam and Eve and raised them up. And the Lord said to Adam, I told you that at the end of five days and a half, I will send my word and save you. Strengthen your heart, therefore, and abide in the cave of treasures of which I have spoken before you. And when Adam heard this word from God, he was comforted with that which God had told him, where he had told him how he would save him. Hmm. All right. Thank you, All brother. Right. Interesting stuff. I think um, yep. in the first six verses, these are some places that I would just have to address. Uh, it seems to be a, um, it seems to be assuming John chapter one, verse one, this idea that in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God seems yeah. to be where it's drawing that terminology to say when i shall send the word that created you and then the word that made you come out of the garden and that raised you when you were fallen yea the word that will save you when the five days and a half are fulfilled mm -hmm. and and i want the viewer to take note of this this is a prophecy right here so now we're actually going to get into here's it's only chapter three but now we're jumping into an actual prophecy which suddenly puts this book into a priority status in my opinion 
as far as you you really do need to determine whether this is a legitimate book or not because it's now it's it's not just talking about biblical things and possibly adding more details to some biblical stories now it's prophesying something and this is where you step yeah. into both Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 and if these prophecies don't come true well you were not supposed to listen to this so this is where exactly. we get into some some uh like I said, priority, in my opinion, it goes on to speak about that same prophecy at the bottom in verse six, where it says, then God in his mercy for Adam, who was made after his own image and similitude, explained to him that these were 5,500 years and how one of them would come and how, and how one would then come and save him and his seed. So basically it's putting a timeline, Ken. Yes. Putting the timeline on this prophecy. Yeah. And the timeline doesn't, in my opinion, quite fit. And there's a qualifier with the prophecy, which is that, at the end of this 5,500 years, the one, and obviously we know, we would assume the one being referred to as the Messiah, the one would come and save him and his seed. So that's going to matter because I think we're going to run into this prophecy again in a couple more chapters. Um, yeah, sorry, Sean, you just cut out there. I didn't hear the last 15 seconds. What you I was just saying, I think that the time qualifier in this prophecy on how he would come and save him and his seed at the end of this 5,500 years we're going to run into that statement again. It's going to be reaffirmed and more clear than what it's saying here in this chapter. But I think it's in a few more chapters ahead as we're going to get to in just a minute. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I'll just touch on one thing uh, where it says, I shall send the word that created you. Now, I don't know, Sean, maybe you and I disagree on this actual point, but I did a video called, did Jesus really create all things on my channel? And in my opinion, I don't believe Yeshua actually took part in the the literal fashioning of creation which would include adam and eve um i'm not going to get into great detail there but there's a video that's only about eight to ten minutes long if you guys want to check that out as to why i don't believe that um i do believe that he existed as the, the firstborn of all creation at the beginning of creation but i don't believe he actually had a hand in creating adam which is what is being asserted here um and you might disagree sean which is which is fine but uh that's one reason why I look at that and think, uh, I don't know about this one. Yeah. Well, if it's, if it's, um, and this kind of goes to the dating of the actual book, right? Because this, it, this to me sounds like Trinitarian language. Yes. And we're going to see that more throughout the chapters. This yeah. idea of the Godhead coming in and, and the Trinity and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's keep going here in seven through 12, where it says, Inasmuch as when our father Adam came out of the garden, he passed by that tree and saw how God had then changed the appearance of it into another form and how it withered. So what yes, I, I, I was going to mention something from that, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know that the, the book of First Enoch is not in the American canon. Um, we reviewed the first book of uh, First Enoch in great depth and great depth on the on both of our channels, but and also in, in the first season of Honor of Kings and uh, a little bit in the second season, even. And the tree of life is mentioned in that book and also in revelation 22 and also in um ezekiel 47 so it's not changed forms it's not withered it's not something different it's just been transplanted to you know uh it's it's still there in its original form but it's it's been Transplanted for a time away from the Garden of Eden uh, as you go throughout prophecy from Enoch's time frame to the to Revelation time frame. And then it's put back in the near the mountain of God and around the mountain of God. There's multiple trees of life 
um, in the in Revelation in the New Jerusalem. So it's to me it this kind of strikes me as odd. Yes, and just a, a quick um, thing. You, you said the tree of life. I believe this is actually referring to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, yes, yes, you're right. Was that's the right. tree where that's that, that's the actual fruit, and that's the context in First Enoch chapter thirty-two that you were just talking about. Sean was, uh, you know, Enoch was taken around by Raphael, and uh, he sees the same tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he says, "How beautiful is the tree, and how attractive is its look." And then he says, "This is the tree that your uh, your father and your mother Adam and Eve took from, and then that's they right. were kicked out of the garden." So, so even yeah. Enoch's day, it's still it's not withered and it's not changed its form. It's still recognizable as the same thing. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I apologize. I was wrong. I, I was thinking of the tree of life. Yeah, no, no. But yes. So that would, that would bring this into question, right? Because this is a, an important and integral, um, in a tree. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's, it's interesting. Our goal is to compare against the, the modern American canon of 66, but because we've done so much research on the book of Enoch, it, it's interesting to see different contradictions with another source that, that uh, and I think we're going to see from what preliminary studies we've done on the book of Adam and Eve, we're going to see a lot more contradictions with the book of Enoch itself, which the book of Enoch lines up with the American canon of 66 so strongly. That's that to me, that would be a concerning issue if this one contradicted Enoch theologically and also in details, details of all types, you know. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. And this is this is going to be a common pattern. For, uh, for you brothers and sisters, you'll pick up on the fact that Sean will and I, we will both be referring back to like Jubilees in Enoch because we've tested them to the canon of 66 and we believe that it passed the Deuteronomy 13 test, that they are good. They're they're for teaching and for, you know, enhancing on doctrine, doctrinal understandings that's in the 66. So it's just, it's going to be kind of par for the course with this particular show of ours because we trust these books. I think we think that they've passed all the tests, like I said, so please refer back to previous seasons where we have done that. If you think that this is a weird standard you guys are holding to by quoting other books, we have tested them and we have you know, seen that they are good. So, Yeah, this is season three. There's a reason why we started with certain books in season one and two. So, um, And there's a reason why we waited until season three to do certain books. <laughs> so basically, um, at the end of chapter three, there's only one statement that stuck out to me, and it's where... Adam took comfort in what God had told him. He said, for he had told him how he would save him. And that's, and that's, yes, he technically did. He said after five and a half days, which was this 5,500 years was when he would be saved, um, that the Lord would send the one, which we, we know was referring to the, the Messiah from the context of these chapters and that he would be the one who's considered the word from God that would actually save them after this time frame. And so this is it mentioning it again. And I didn't really have a lot to say about these six verses. That's just wanted to remind the viewer that we're going to run into this concept in later chapters as well. So don't forget about this idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And before we move on, Sean, I think that just this, um, the disposition of even Adam once, you know, they're, they're being told that they have to leave the garden, they're falling down dead and they're all sorrowful and they're all this and that. And Yeshua has to come and raise them up. It's, I mean, when we look at Jubilees, right, when they were told that they have to leave, what's Adam doing? He's praising the father as he's leaving. He's he's building a sacrifice, um, a priestly thing that uh, is, is a, an act of worship to the father. He, he, they're leaving the garden. I'm sure they were sad, but this just seems like an embellishment 
of, of the text that it just, it just reads odd to me. It is different. And like you said, um, there's this idea of when an Adam comes out in the book of Jubilees, he's doing a priestly concept. This is what Jubilees three tells you that the, the angels that were in the garden with Adam and Eve explained to them how to not just care for the animals, but also the garden itself and protect the, the garden from the animals. And they also had learned priestly duties, which is building altars and doing sacrifices. And so they, the narrative that we're reading here in the, in the first book of Adam and Eve paints seems to paint Adam with a much more naive and unlearned mental state. It's like, he doesn't know anything about the ways of God and it doesn't really tell us as far as, unless I missed it, Ken, you can let me know, but did it tell us how, does the book of first Adam and Eve tell us how long Adam and Eve were in the garden according to this account? It doesn't, it doesn't Jubilees, but no, it, it does not. So, which is okay. weird because when they're throwing around, um, you know, what's, what are they, what are they claiming there that they were, they might've been in the garden for 500 years or something like that. Like, I mean, it just, it doesn't. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I didn't understand that either. Where, why specifically 5,500 and, and again, remember that number guys, because it's actually going to be mentioned and come into play as far as specifically what happens at the end of that timeline of that prophecy. So um, yeah, that's definitely to keep in mind and, and uh, stick with us. We'll be right back. Adam and Eve Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, and their act removed our ability to walk around unrestricted. No need to worry, though. Hanging on his words has got you covered. Literally. Find a link in the video description. Welcome back, everybody. Um, thanks for bearing with us through these broadcasting uh, mishaps that we're having today. Both our, our feed seems to be messing up and we have some glitches happening. But this is this is why in the past we never did this live because it just requires like it's just Ken and I like it, it normally to do any kind of production like this. There's like a third person who all he does is focusing on, uh, you know, all the stuff, the technical stuff. So we're we're I'm we're both trying to like multitask between the technical stuff and, and the actual scriptures and make sure we have the good conversation for you. So thanks for your yeah. patience with yeah. us. We, we hope to weed this stuff out for the yeah. following uh, episodes. Hopefully things will smooth over <laughs> for future episodes. Yeah. All right, brother, I'm going to jump right into chapter four. So we'll keep moving along here. It says verse one, but Adam and Eve wept for having come out of the garden, their first abode. And indeed, when Adam looked at his flesh that was altered, he wept bitterly and he and Eve over what they had done. 
and they walked and went gently down into the cave of treasures. As they came into, excuse me, as they came to it, Adam wept over himself and said to Eve, "Look at this cave that is to be our prison in this world and place of punishment. What is compared with the garden? What is its narrowness compared with the space of the other? What is this rock by the side of those groves? What is the gloom of this cavern compared with the light of the garden?" What is this overhanging ledge of rock to shelter us compared with the mercy of the Lord that overshadowed us? What is the soil of this cave compared with the garden land, this earth strewed with stones and that planted with delicious fruit trees? And Adam said to Eve, look at your eyes and at mine, which afore beheld angels in heaven, praising, and they too without ceasing. But now we do not see as we did. Our eyes have become a flesh. They cannot see in like manner as they saw before. Adam said to e- again to Eve, What is our body today compared to what it was in former days when we dwelt in the garden? After this, Adam did not like to enter the cave under the overhanging rock, nor would he ever have entered it. But he bowed to God's orders and said to himself, unless I enter the cave, I shall again be a transgressor. All right, brother. It's a, it's an interesting chapter here. Yeah, and uh, you know the, the first several verses kind of harkens back to what I was saying before the commercial break. There, that it's they're painting a picture of a of a terrible barren wasteland Earth outside of the garden. When this is, we don't see that in Scripture at all. We don't see that in our world today. Even though people are corrupting the Earth, and and there's a lot of terrible things happening in the Earth for sure. It's still a beautiful place, still a, a habitable place, like it was always meant to be. And uh, yeah, it's I, I don't get it. Yeah, and now we've got more discussion here in chapter four about how their flesh is different now. This idea that that it's it's kind of adding to the bright nature statements from previous chapters, and then it's going in here and says when Adam looked at his flesh that it was altered. And this is this is where I've heard other people teach this idea that that the bright nature that's being referred to means that they didn't actually have flesh, like we like we're told they're born of in Genesis two seven, but that they were more like glowing. Right. And that there was it was more like a heavenly angelic style being. But they're they're actually conversing now about how their flesh has been changed. That to me is definitely something I don't I don't see in Genesis as far as, you know, when it says Genesis 2, 7, you know, that God took man from the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life into him and he became a living soul. And. This was the nefesh. This was the flesh that was created at that point. He was not originally made in some kind of angelic style body with glorified flesh. What do you think, Ken? I concur. I concur, brother. I mean, yeah. it, it very, um, very much leans towards a Gnostic kind of perspective. Um, but yes, I, I agree that uh, Adam and Eve were created of flesh. Eve was, you know, made from the rib of Adam of the same flesh and you know they were actually able to live possibly forever if they had eaten from the tree of life and continued eating from it and never transgressed any of god's commandments uh they would have been in a body that they could live forever um obviously we know the story that that didn't happen which is why the father had to remove them from from paradise and remove them from the ability to reach towards the tree of life so that they wouldn't in their sin continue longevity of life that was a very merciful act on his behalf for doing that to them but uh no there was no all of a sudden you know eyes becoming made of flesh them losing their you know quote unquote light suits um and then walking around in an inferior body when you know the father created them as flesh that's that's what the text 
reveals and is, is uh, it makes it clear, in my opinion. Mario Alexander says, so Adam didn't notice his flesh when he was covering with fig leaves? Hmm. <laughs> so basically, they've already kicked out of the garden, yeah, and he's yeah. acknowledging the change of his flesh, yet we see in Genesis that they cover themselves knowing that they were naked. Um, so that, yeah, that's that's interesting as well. And I think if we go further into this chapter, verses 7 through 12, something that really stuck out to me, it says, but now we do not see as we did. Our eyes have become a flesh. They cannot see in like manner as they saw before. So he's mentioning this thing again, the same concept, and, and specifically about his eyes. And that's where we're, we, we're going to get more talk of this in future chapters, actually, from uh, supposedly from God to Adam and Eve about their eyesight. Mm -hmm. So anything about this last part of four you want to mention? Um. No, does it say in this chapter um, that Ad, that Eve was created? We're on chapter four, yeah. That, yeah. that Eve was created on the same day as Adam. I thought it did. I thought I read that somewhere in this chapter. Let me see here. Or it alludes to her kind of being born on the same day. I thought it was in this in this chapter. Um, I don't remember seeing it this chapter, but maybe we'll get to it here in a minute. Okay. Yeah, maybe we'll. Okay, maybe I'm get ahead of myself there. <laughs> it's okay. Well, I'll let you take the next chapter, brother. Sure. All right, chapter five. Then Adam and Eve entered the cave and stood praying in their own tongue, unknown to us, but which they knew well. And as they prayed, Adam raised his eyes and saw the rock and the roof of the cave that covered him overhead so that he could see neither heaven nor God's creatures. So he wept and smote heavily upon his breast until he dropped and was as dead. And Eve sat weeping, for she believed he was dead. Then she arose, spread her hands towards God, suing him for mercy and pity and said, Oh God, forgive me my sin, the sin which I committed, and remember it not against me, for I alone caused your servant to fall from the garden into this lost estate, from light into this darkness, and from the abode of joy into this prison. Your servant thus fallen and from his death, that he may weep and repent of the transgression which he committed through me. Take not away his soul this once, but let him live, that he may stand after the measure of his repentance and do your will as before his death. But if you do not raise him up, then, O God, take away, oh, take away my own soul, that I be like him, and leave me not in this dungeon, one and alone, for I cannot stand alone in this world, but with him only. For you, O God, did cause a slumber to come upon him and to take a bone from his side and did restore the flesh in the place of it by your divine power. And you did take me the bone and make me a woman bright like him with heart, reason, and speech and in flesh like unto his own. And you did make me after the likeness of his countenance by your power and mercy. O Lord, I and he are one and you, O God, are our creator. You are he who made us both in one day. Therefore, O God, give him life. We dwell in it on account of our transgression. But if you will not give him life, then take me, even me, like him we both may die the same day and Eve wept bitterly and fell upon our father Adam from her great sorrow okay <laughs> yeah what do you, is there anything in the in the first part of this one that you want to comment on there wasn't a lot that I wanted to comment on it it's not it's not that I can't find parallels with the scriptures because we know the story of Adam and Eve is given in Genesis it's just that all this seems to be just basically conversational narrative that we don't see in Genesis that would be like if this if this book was credible, it would just be added to what we don't get in Genesis, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and aside from the continuance of, you know, 
Adam um, basically just saying that you know we were in light now we're in this dark world it's a prison it's it's all these you know terrible things and we're in this cave and it's nasty i you know yeah. i just i don't and then the, the last part of this chapter kind of stuck out to me um, here, and I think it's verses 9 and 10, which says, For you, O God, did you cause a slumber to come upon him, and did take from bone of his side, and did restore the flesh in the place thereof. And then she goes on to say, Because she was made like him, bright like him, with heart, reason, and speech, and in flesh, like unto his own. So all I'm to, to, to give some benefit of the doubt to this, to this text, it's already mentioned the idea that their flesh had changed. So I'm guessing it's referring to within the context of this own book, it's referring to this flesh that they did have while they were in the garden and of a bright nature was some sort of flesh. Just, it wasn't the kind that they're, they have now. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, the best way I could put it. That's, that's exactly how I would think that they're trying to communicate this. But. And then the last little part that I have highlighted here where it says, Oh Lord, I and he are one. And this is Eve praying over Adam's dead body, basically. Um, and she's praying, I and he are one. And I don't know what that means because if it's just that they haven't been one in thought or purpose or action or intent, that's why they got kicked out of the garden. <laughs> and they're only, they're not married yet, according yeah. to the book of Adam and Eve. Cause that doesn't happen. I think until chapter 53. So I'm not sure exactly not in the emotional, intellectual, spiritual sense. Are they one? And they're not in the biblical Genesis two sense. Are they one? So I'm not sure how it's using this terminology here. Yeah, and it might just be in reference to what I was referring to earlier about how he had made them both in one day. They're one as in like they're of the same flesh. Mm. She came from his his rib bone. Um, but yeah, that that's what I wanted to highlight is just how claiming that her and Adam were both created in one day on the same day. And uh, we, I don't see that in Jubilee's Jubilee 3. I mean, we we see that on the second week. Right. Also, in, she is taken from his rib, and it wouldn't be the same day. Yeah, 100%. Genesis as well. You know, it, sorry, it got to the point sorry. where... Yeah. yeah, sorry, man. We're having some, some technical difficulties. But Genesis also mentions this as well. Uh, just the idea that Adam was already created, and it was not good that he was alone. It was the first time in Genesis that the father said, it's not good. Everything else he called good. But then when he saw the man was without a mate, he said, it's not good. And so therefore he put him under his sleep and took the rib and created Eve, which was after Adam was already created for some time. And that's where Jubilees expounds on that story with greater detail as well. But so, yeah, this, that would be something that I, I couldn't, could quite reconcile with the, with the American canon. So, yeah. Um, I'm going to jump into chapter six, unless you want to have anything further to say on chapter five. I don't, but I, I I just recall wanting to touch base on the idea of the cherub. Kind of acting as an archangel, it's, you know, it's petitioning the father on the behalf of Adam and Eve and acting like an archangel one. I don't see anywhere in Enoch, Jubilees and the canon 66 anywhere where a cherub has that kind of position of, being a messenger for the father to mankind. They're strict guardians of his throne. And as we know, they were placed at the, the gates of, of the garden to keep everyone out. Uh, but I don't ever see them. Which, which passage are you in brother? This which... was, sorry, this was a previous chapter. I wanted to talk about it. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll go back there. 
we and we don't have we don't have to pull up the actual text. I just wanted to bring that to people's attention, okay. just because I I mean Sean and I have we've studied angelology quite a bit, and when I read that, I was like, this is the first time I'm ever seeing, aside from the cherubim crying, holy, 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 before the Father in Revelation and other passages. tend to act like what we're seeing here in the book regarding how you know like i said they're kind of interceding for adam and eve and going up to heaven coming back down um scaring adam and eve like all this other stuff it's just to me it, it's it's sloppy uh misrepresentation of the classifications of certain angels and i, I just see the writer kind of not abiding by the, what i think is a rule in these other texts that these cherub but don't act like archangels like we see in the sex. That's all I wanted to say on that. That's okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was actually mentioning this to my wife um, earlier that, uh, you know, after studying this in preparation for this, these episodes, I thought, you know, I, many people may already know that I kind of uh, am an aspiring writer and in the future, I have some, you know, some, some books that I'd actually like to publish. I've, I've already um, self-published two in the past and you know, it was a long time ago with bad theology, so I, I don't talk about them or promote them. But the point is, when you're going through a writing process, you you have to have an outline for your story. You actually you need to know where your story is going to go, and all of your component, all of your characters have to fall in line with that plot, so that therefore, what you introduce in the beginning, as you introduce characters in the setting, makes sense by the time you get to chapter forty or fifty or seventy, right? So. One thing that I that we get, I think you're pointing out that I also you're going to see develop more and more through this book is that doesn't seem to be on the writer's mind of this book. It there's so many things that are at the end of it that doesn't that it just seems it, I'm getting a feeling, and this is why I'm just saying I I rarely talk about this in this way on Honor of Kings because we don't um, we try to stick just to the comparisons. But it gives me the impression that the writer started out and then just started continuing with the narrative, not remembering maybe where he actually started his narrative. Hmm. And so as he's adding more information to more chapters, there's an incoherency. So um, but anyway, let's let, let me go to chapter six. We're going to finish the last four chapters real quick. Which which would go ahead. I'm sorry, Ken. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say which would lead kind of credence to the idea of holy spirit inspired scripture not doing what you just said it's not okay. sloppy it's not it doesn't miss the the details and it, it, there's a continuance of theology that that flows correctly through the holy spirit inspiring the men that are writing it so this was a telltale sign that i don't know if the guy had the holy spirit in him doing this personally i agree brother let's look at chapter six it says but god looked upon them for they had killed themselves through great grief but he would raise them and comfort them he therefore sent his word unto them that they should stand and be raised forthwith. And the Lord said unto Adam and Eve, You transgressed of your own free will until you came out of the garden in which I had placed you. Of your own free will, we have transgressed through your desire for divinity, greatness, and an exalted state, such as I have, so that I deprived you of the bright nature in which you were then, which you then were. And I made you come out of the garden to this land, rough and full of trouble. And it goes on. To say, it, if only you had not transgressed my commandment, had kept my law, and had not eaten of the fruit of the tree, near which I told you not to come. And there were fruit trees in the garden better than that one. But the wicked Satan, who continued not in his first estate, nor kept his faith, and whom was no good intent towards me, and who through I had created him, yet set me at naught, and sought the Godhead, so that I hurled him down from heaven. He it is who made the tree appear pleasant in your eyes, until you ate of it by hearkening to him. 
Thus you have transgressed my commandment, and therefore have I brought upon you all these sorrows. For I am God the Creator, who, when I created my creatures, did not intend to destroy them. But after they had sorely roused my anger, I punished them with grievous plagues until they repent. But if, on the contrary, they still continue hardening in their transgression, they shall be under a curse forever. And this is me controlling my facial expressions. Strong, harsh words. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I just highlighted this because this is what we see. You know, I think this this is alluding to the statement we see in Genesis where it's, you know, uh, the Satan is the, the serpent is telling Eve, you know, uh, you will not die. But, he, you know, he doesn't want you to eat it because you will be, he knows that the moment you eat it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And so I think that's what this is playing upon this highlighted statement here in the first five verses of chapter six. Yeah. And so that could be counted as a parallel um, to, you know, a correct detail. But the big problem I have brother is when we get to verse seven, because it says the wicked and Satan who continued not in his first estate nor kept in, kept in his faith in whom was no good intent towards me. And who, though I created him yet set me at naught and sought the Godhead, so that I hurled him down from heaven. And this is not accurate to the canon of 66. Would you say? Yes. Yes, I would agree. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, it's... Uh... <laughs> Go ahead, man. I'll... I'll, I'll yeah. Come here. yeah. Job chapter 1 and 2, we see that Satan, along with other angels, are able to present themselves to the Father in heaven above. Satan is literally walking up to the most high to present himself. And I, I posit brother that it's because they're doing Torah. You remember Exodus 23, three times a year, all your males are to present yourself before the Lord. The angels follow the Torah in heaven. That's what they're doing in Job chapter one and two is they're bringing themselves before the Lord. That's my theory on what, why the angels are coming before the Lord in Job one and two and Satan comes with them. And so therefore I think that, that, that I mean, that is Job, the book of Job, which is uh, literally directly related to Job in the conversation between God and Satan in Job 1 and 2. So we know the time frame is way after the Garden of Eden. And this is where, Ken, I think this is where we, we get further into the first book of Adam and Eve. And it references this idea of Satan already being thrown down before Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. And apparently Satan acts like this was his realm and his domain. And he tries to rally these other beings with them to, to attack Adam and Eve, as we see later in the book of first Adam and Eve, because right. it's a totally different theology, a, a, a pre Genesis theology that we see being uh, set up right here that we see expounded upon later in this book that I do not see any correlation with in an Enoch Jubilees or the traditional American canon of 66. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it seems like the uh, the writer was uh, set out of the book of Jude, right? Where it talks about the angels who kept not their first estate. But yeah. we know that Jude was quoting from Enoch. And there's a specific time qualifier where that, um, where that statement is placed in. And that's well after the garden, well after the garden in the days of Jared um, and Enoch and Noah. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's sloppy. In my opinion, it's sloppy to, to throw that in there. Um, yeah. It's a, uh, do you want to take chapter seven real quick? Yeah, sure. Sure. Okay, brother. When Adam and Eve heard these words from God, 
They wept and sobbed yet more, but they strengthened their hearts in God because they now felt that the Lord was to them like a father and a mother. And for this very reason, they wept before him and sought mercy from him. Then God had pity on them and said, O oh Adam, I have made my covenant with you and I will not turn from it. Neither will I let you return to the garden until my covenant of the great five days and a half is fulfilled. God, O oh Lord, you did create us and make us to fit, sorry, and make us fit to be in the garden. And before I transgressed, you made all beasts come to me that I should name them. Your grace was then on me, and I named every one according to your mind, and you made them all subject unto me. But now, O oh Lord God, that I have transgressed your commandment, all beasts will rise against me and will devour me, and Eve, your handmaid, and will cut off our life from the face of the earth. I therefore beseech you, O oh God, that since you have made us come out of the garden, and have made us to be in a strange land, you will not let the beasts hurt us. When the Lord heard these words from Adam, he had pity on him, and he felt that he had truly said that the beasts of the field would rise and devour him and Eve, because he, the Lord, was angry with them too on account of their transgression. Then God commanded the beasts and the birds and all that moves upon the earth to come to Adam and to be familiar with him, and not to trouble him and Eve, nor yet any of the good and righteous among their posterity. Then the beasts did obeisance to Adam, according to the commandment of God, except the serpent against which God was wroth. It did not come to Adam with the beasts. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, Interesting. stuff there again. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to... Um, so I highlighted wait. this. Go ahead, brother. Okay. You, you got the highlighted thing. What, what do you think about the, uh, the very first verse where it says, because they now felt that the Lord was to them like a father and a mother. It, to me, like I, like I said, it just there's some Gnostic feelings in this book that, I mean, the whole father and mother thing, it, it's, I don't know. What do you think about that, that verbiage? Yeah, I think that um, it's not verbiage that we see in, in the canon of 66. It's definitely, I could see how people could let that slide though, you know, because they'll think, well, it's just meaning he's caring for them, you know, kind of idea, um, which that's fine. But I do think that it's the, the, the Gnostic feel that you have is, I think is because this book came about after the second century where you had a lot of Gnostic texts arising. And this particular book, according to historians was found in Arabic before being translated into Gia's. And it wasn't translated into English until the 1800s. But um, so we don't even know who wrote it truly but we know its oldest surviving manuscript was in Arabic. And I think that that's interesting to me because there's information in this book that we're going to see later that is also in the Quran. Yeah, which and, and, came the about, yeah. and the Talmud, yeah. And that, that, well, at least the Quran anyway, came about in the same century, the 6th century uh, AD. Right. So to me, that's it's interesting to see maybe where this book even came from and who wrote it. But what, what familiarity with... The, the biblical theology, the law and the prophets they actually had during that time frame. Um, the, the statement that I had highlighted here, Oh, Adam, I've made my covenant with you and I will turn, will not turn from it. Neither will I let you return to the garden and my, until my covenant of the great five days and a half is fulfilled. Remember the three different times previously in the previous chapters where we talked about this prophecy of five and a half days where here it literally gives you a promise connected to the end of that five and a half days, which was 5,500 years. And it says at that point, 5,500 years, I will let you return to my garden. Right. Right. 
So even if we do the math in this in the uh, in the in the American canon of sixty six, do we get from Adam until Yeshua shows up the first time? Do we get five thousand five hundred years? We do not. No. Nope. Yeah, I don't see that either. Um, I even try to. I mean, if you do the Septuagint timeline because they have some a little bit different dates and in, in different chapters, it's it's even worse. Um, it would mean in both accounts, both the Masoretic and the Septuagint translations of the Old Testament, this 5,500 years prophecy it does not make any sense. Um, it, it just does not. And to yeah, me, I it mean, falls completely flat. It would have to be around the 1500s, right? Yeah. Yeah, it falls completely flat um, with any sort of calculation possible and the promise that's made to it, which is only at that point can can Adam return to the garden, and that does not happen that just does not happen at any point. In his, I mean, the garden has not come back yet. It's the new Jerusalem that comes back. And it all happens on the resurrection on the day of the Lord for all the saints to go into it together. So we got some serious theological issues here. Yeah, we do. And, you know, when we refer to the book of Jubilees, it says that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden for seven years, exactly, before Satan came in and with his beguiling... Uh, attributes, <laughs> you know, tempted Eve, and then they were moved at that point. So I believe that Adam was created a full man out of his creation and that they dwelt in the garden for at least seven years before they were removed. So this would put, you know, the, the math to me there, we should already have the kingdom. We should already have this promise that the father himself in this chapter is, is claiming is going to be true. This is, you know, this is his covenant that he made with Adam and after 5,500 years, it will be fulfilled. You'll be coming back into this garden. We should already be all be in there. And we're not. Yeah. Yeah, this is, to me, this is, we're only seven chapters in, brother. But to me, this is like, this is why we do this. Because if there's prophecies in these books, that puts it in a whole different category. Yeah. And that's where this one not only prophesied something in the first three chapters, it, it gives you an inclination or it gives you a qualifier that, annuls the prophecy and tells you that it did not come true and we're only in chapter seven yeah if, if you want verses in chapter real quick um where it talks about the beasts and how you know adam's basically saying to the father can you can you make them not kill us because you know we're kind of leaving this land and we're, we're we got to start something here and we have to have some progeny um if you want to just click to the next set of the yeah. next slide over so um, where it says, uh, okay, you've got a highlight already. Then God commanded the beasts and the birds and all that moves upon the earth to come to Adam and to be familiar with him, not to trouble him and Eve, nor yet of any of the good and righteous among their posterity. Then the beast did obeisance to Adam. Okay. Well, just before that, where it says that, uh, the father was going to allow the beast essentially to kill Adam and Eve. And if Adam and Eve didn't say, Hey, can you close the mouths? They would have, then how are we going to have this whole thing fulfilled at all? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. By the word for the by the way, excuse me for the uh, for the viewer, if you don't know what the word obeisance is, it basically means to to like to bow or to do a, like a curtsy to a partial bend in respect, you know. And that's where this is claiming all the animals came up to Adam to do that after he prayed this because before that they wanted to kill him. So again, this strikes me as strange because in the garden, the he's literally interacting with the animals while he's in the garden and therefore he names them all as well. So 
it just it strikes me as strange. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to jump on chapter eight real quick. Is that all right, brother? Yeah, totally. Let's move along. Okay. Then Adam wept and said, Oh God, when we dwelt in the garden and our hearts were lifted up, we saw the angels that sang praises in heaven, but now we do not see as we were used, we were used to do. Nay, when we entered the cave, all creation became hidden from us. Then God, the Lord said unto Adam, when you were under subjection to me, you had a bright nature within you. And for that reason, could you see things afar off? But after your transgression, your bright nature was withdrawn from you. And it was not left to you to see things afar off, but only near at hand, after the ability of the flesh, for it is brutish. When Adam and Eve heard these words from God, they went their way, praising and worshiping him in a sorrowful heart, and God ceased to commune with them. And I think this is, yeah, this is actually, there's only four verses in this particular chapter. Yeah. So I, I struggle with this one. We're going back to the idea of the bright nature. And now, like Adam mentioned in two chapters earlier about how their eyes physically were changing. Yeah. So supposedly their eyesight was greater and they could see things really, really far away because they had this better type of flesh and now they don't. So they cannot see that like, you know, they, they need yeah. glasses, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. They don't have <laughs> X-Men uh, type of vision where, you know, I guess the implication here is that if we were still in these light bodies today, then we, we, we could see to heaven and see beyond all these things. But we have this, uh, this disability, I guess you could say, <laughs> you know, this text is claiming here, but I don't know. I don't see that anywhere. And I, it's weird that it would, but only near at hand after the ability of the flesh for it is brutish. I mean, when God created Adam, he said it was good, right? That's, the flesh that's right. Was good itself at the, at the beginning. It wasn't and brutish. Look, he never said this is, this is inferior. This is bad. This is, you got to get out of this. It was good at first. It was good. It was. In fact, when, when the Messiah, when Yeshua became in the flesh, Look at all the things that he accomplished, all the miracles that flowed through his flesh as a result of his obedience to God. So it's, yeah, it seems to paint a unique picture of the post-fall bodies of mankind that, that would line up with Gnostic doctrine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You want to take chapter nine? Yeah, absolutely. All right, brother. Then Adam and Eve came out of the cave of treasures and drew near to the garden gate. And there they stood to look at it and wept for having come away from from it and I went from before the gate of the garden to the southern side of it and found there the water that watered the garden from the root of the tree of life and that parted itself from there into four rivers over the earth then they came and drew near to the water and looked at it and saw that it was the water that came forth from under the root of the tree of life in the garden and adam wept and wailed and smote upon his breast for being severed from the garden and said to eve why have you brought me up sorry what have you brought upon me upon yourself and upon our seeds, so many of these plagues and punishments. Hmm. Another short chapter? Or is there more? Yeah, okay. Sorry, yeah, it just took a minute. Yeah, no problem. And Eve said unto him, What is it you have been what is it you have seen to weep and to speak to me in this wise? And he said to Eve, See you not this water that was with us in the garden, that watered the trees of the garden and flowed out thence? And we, when we were in the garden, did not care about it. But since we came to this strange land, we love it and turn it to use for our body. But when Eve heard these words from him, she wept. And from the soreness of their weeping, they fell into the water and would have put an end to themselves in it. So as never again to return and behold the creation. For when they looked upon the work of creation, they felt they must put an end to themselves. Okay. So yeah. Got some suicidal ideations here that I don't yeah. see anywhere else in, in scripture, any other, uh, you know, extra biblical text. 
none of that stuff. They, they're just they're embellishing this this idea of woe is me. I should die. This is terrible. We're in this barren land. This is like how are we gonna live? This is let's just end it all type of thing. And I don't I don't see that anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, you're right, brother. Also, we we have some directional these details that are different from Genesis chapter two. Yes. And that's, I think, worthy of note. So I'm going to pull it up for folks to read because, well, let's let's re, uh, reiterate what's said here in chapter 9, uh, verses 2 and 3. Adam went, f went from before the gate of the garden to the southern side of it and found there the water that watered the garden. Now, by the way, remember, this was the southern side where it said back in chapter 2 and 3, God did not want him to go to the southern side of the garden because he would smell the trees from the wind coming through the trees of the garden, which, by the way, the garden was walled off because that's what the word means in Hebrew. So I don't know how he would have smelled the wind, uh, the fragrance of the trees of the garden anyway. Um, right. So, but that's another small minute detail I didn't really want to bring up. But now he's going to the side of the garden that the father did not specifically want him to go to earlier in the book. Um, and as a result of it, he's he gets he sees water uh, coming from the root of the tree of life and that it parted itself from there into four rivers over the earth. Yeah. It, so this is saying that water's coming out of the garden yeah, and yeah. creating four rivers. But let's go to Genesis because Genesis says something different. And uh, give me just one second and I'll pull it up. All right. Yeah, so here it's vastly different. Yeah. Vastly different, right? Genesis 2. Um, it says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he formed. Out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, not at the southern edge. Because remember, he can't go back in the garden. Mm -hmm. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And verse 10 says, now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. This is saying the, the river flowed out of the garden to water the land. Yeah, and that's completely river. opposite. It says yeah. verse 10 in Genesis 2, that now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. From there it divided into four rivers. And then it goes on to name those four rivers. So we've got... Uh, got a pretty big contradiction here in my opinion um yeah huge it's huge. yeah and, and and i guess what the implication is that that the water that comes from the roots of this tree of life are what do they help aid in your lifespan or something like that like yeah i hear the importance of these four streams coming from the root of the tree of life we don't see that anywhere in any scripture that this it's rooted in water we know that the waters that are for healing of the nations and stuff come from under the throne of the father. Right. That's right. Ezekiel 47, 12 and revelation 22, four and five, or excuse me, uh, one through three. So you're right. Yeah. The, the trees of life grow alongside the river of life. And so the river of life itself, that water comes out from under the throne. So that's yeah. anyway. Yeah. It's, it seems to be a pretty big difference in directions and stuff. So I'm going to jump on chapter 10, unless there's anything else in chapter nine you want to talk about. No, we're good. Okay, brother. So last chapter we're going to review today. It says, And then God, merciful and gracious, he looked upon them thus lying in the water and nigh unto death and sent an angel who brought them out of the water and laid them on the seashore as dead. Then the angel went up to God, was welcome, and said, O God, your creatures have breathed their last. Then God sent his word unto Adam and Eve, who raised them from their death. And Adam said after he was raised, O God, while while we were in the garden, we did not require or care for this water, but since we came to this land, we cannot do without it. Then God said to Adam, while you were under my command and was a bright angel, you knewest not this water. 
but after you have transgressed my commandment, you cannot, you cannot do without water, wherein to wash your body and make it grow. For it is now like that of beasts and is in want of water. When Adam and Eve heard these words from God, they wept a bitter cry, and Adam entreated God to let him return into the garden and look at it a second time. But God said unto Adam, I've made you a promise, and when that promise is fulfilled, I'll bring you back into the garden, you and your righteous seed. And God ceased to commune with Adam. So yeah. we have that same prophecy repeated in chapter 10, the one that, that uh, already has been disproven, the one that was said in chapter five, chapter 7. Um, the one that no other text, 500 years. Yep. Yeah. That 5,500 years is that, that promise is being repeated to him. But also here in verse five, brother, it looks like he's calling. He's, it looks like he's calling their, their pre-sin bodies like a bright angel. This yeah. is literally as Gnostic as it gets in my Pretty opinion. Much. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, um, it's got such Gnostic flair. I mean, if you don't have, a solid or somewhat of an understanding of Gnosticism and what they taught. I mean, this is, this yeah. is, you know, you're getting <laughs> it right here. One one. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting it right here. It's, it's wild. And the, and the whole point of it is that in Gnosticism is that you can be enlightened again. If, you know, if, and of course, obviously this is tying it to this prophecy that, that didn't come true uh, several hundred years back. So um, anything yeah. else? Yeah. I, it's just, I don't know, and I just I think I think there would have to be some sort of a a second mention somewhere of Adam and Eve like committing suicide to the point where you know the angel would have to come and save them somewhere else. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's too it's that's too big of a, a thing to just completely leave out. And I know, like we said earlier, well, that this isn't this texts, is only the, the second time. I know it's. I don't know. Yeah. It's to me. It's going to say it. It's going to say it a couple more times in the following twenty twenty plus chapters. Yeah. So I mean, we were only planning on doing ten chapters today, brothers and sisters. But um, my my current perspective on this book so far is that it doesn't pass the test. Um, there's far too many obvious errors, in my opinion. That there's no way I would ever pull any text out of this book in order to build upon a doctrine or to teach uh, something that may be um, misunderstood and in, in the uh, I just could it would be responsible for me to do that based off of what we've already just covered in this hour and 20 minutes that we've done and as John said like this this is a large book uh, and it's already just not not passing any type of test in my opinion yeah I mean, this is just the first book of Adam and Eve, not the second, third, or fourth. The first one's like 70 something chapters. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> so next next week, we're going to continue through this book. But I, Kim, what do you think about this? We've seen, in just in the first 10 chapters, we've seen huge theological problems, not just details. We know that sometimes you have conflicting accounts. Like, you know, you've got like some issues with, you know, the death of Cain between Jubilees and Jasher. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that's just a, a, a conflicting account. And some people try to marry the two accounts and say, well, one part was the beginning of the process and Jasher is just explaining the end of the process. And, you know, they try to try to reconcile it. And, and there's some ways you could possibly do it. But this is talking about covenant promises, the resurrection. This is talking about getting back to the garden and giving definitive timelines. This is talking about things that are... Uh, theological stalwarts in the canon of 66, but it's talking about them backwards. 
and, and it's not it's not adding up at in any regard. So, what do you think about this? What if we um, for next week? What if we we went through some of the the rest of the chapters? And for the viewers' sake, what if we highlighted? some of the major issues that we saw with the, with the following chapters of this book, instead of going line by line, because we already see that this one has disqualified itself in the first seven chapters from Deuteronomy 13. Um, how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I like that. I think it would be more beneficial for us to do that for, for people who, you know, want to continue looking into this book instead of going line by line, because like you said, it's, it's already in our opinion, it's, it hasn't passed any type of test. So, yeah, I think yeah. we should do that. Pick out the the most obvious, blatant, glaring ones, and then, you know, come to a conclusion regarding should we use books like this to take yeah. texts and and mold them to to our pet doctrines? Should we be doing that? Is that responsible as a teacher of someone who's who's trying to teach people, uh, you know, theology, any any anything that has to do with the Father, Son, the Kingdom, the Gospel message of the Kingdom of God, all of that stuff? Like, should we be going to these texts? And I, yeah, I think that's a big question that needs to be answered. And we'll, we'll get to that next uh, next episode, I think. Yeah. You want to take a couple of questions real quick? Yeah, sure. If you guys have questions, throw them in the caps. Uh, we'll take a couple. The Blood Saves is asking, Sean and Ken, let's drop this book and let's start on the vision of Paul. <laughs> question mark. <laughs> Um, I don't know, man. We'll have to put that in the in the list. We got so many other books Vision we have to Paul, get. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we can put that on the list, brother. Yeah. I have I have read that one, Blood. Uh, <laughs> sure, it, it, we have such an extensive list that we could do, but uh, that that one doesn't it doesn't rub me the right way either, to be honest. But yeah, we can consider that one. I know yeah. that the, the Testament of Solomon has been a, a book that several people have come to me and been like, Hey, what are you, your thoughts on this? Like, is it good? It seems to fill in some gaps and, and uh, we might actually do that one because it's decently short and we can cover that and probably in, a, in an episode. So that might be one for the future. Now, Ken, this is not in caps. They're not asking a question, but they are. I, I imagined after what I just posed to you that we would, you know, kind of do a summary of some of the huge theological issues for the rest of this book, instead of going line by line, I imagine some other people might be feeling this way. So I just want to point out this particular comment by Yahuyakin. He's basically saying, let's just move to the next book. We already know this one's bunk. Let's just move to the next book. Mm -hmm. Here's the issue, guys. There's so many people that draw from the, the book of Adam and Eve, both the first and the second. Hardly anyone even knows about the third and the fourth one, but they draw a lot from the first and the second one. So I think what might help the viewer is if we show and give you a resource that's on camera to show you the huge problems with the first and maybe even some of the second. What do you think about that brother? brother? Yeah. Because, yeah. Because they're one book technically, even though they're broken up in first and second books, there's, they're technically all the same story. So once you start bleeding over into the second book, you get even just as many big theological problems in my opinion. Um, yeah. Some of you guys may have seen me mention some of them with my debate about serpent seed with Zen Garcia recently. So maybe just as a resource, we could, um, we could quickly paraphrase some of the huge issues next week about this book, and then we'll move on to a different book. Yeah. Yeah. People, even after watching this, they'll disagree. They'll say, well, no, like it, it, there's this stuff can line up and we can, we can, it's malleable, right? The texts are malleable. So we want to do our due diligence, point out the, the most 
you know, I don't like using Catholic terms, but the heretical stuff, the stuff that yeah. just does not work. Yeah. Um, and that'll give the confidence that I think people who are on the fence that they need to, to know whether or not to trust this book, because there are some good brothers out there doing a good work that subscribe to this book and they think it's legit and you can pull text out and we want them to at least have two videos or, you know, Sean and I have been doing, <laughs> you know, what we're doing right now and, and they can consider it. Hopefully they'll consider it and we can have a resource for you to give to them. So, yeah. Thomas Tevlov is asking, what's the garden of Eden? If Eden is separate from the garden. It's a great question. Well, if you are new to both Sean and I's channel, um, Sean, you have a, a, an extensive playlist on your channel, don't you? I do. I do. I In fact, this? we just did we just did a podcast on this last week. It's called uh, "The Kingdom of the Garden." And if you if you guys want to drop that in the chat, or well, actually, this is your channel, brother. So I forgot. Let me uh, let me try to pull up. I can drop the the link in the chat real quick while yeah, you talk. Do that. Yeah, I I also cover that in my very um, what was it? My second video on my channel. It was called "Paradise Found," um, where I cover what the garden of Eden is and how it's a separate concept of the actual name of the land that was called Eden, because this garden, like many things in scripture has other monikers attached to it. And it's, it's a character that is at the very beginning of the book to the very end. And it's intermittent. It's personified in female fashion several times in, in certain chapters. And, uh, and Sean and I have, have covered that, you know, extensively in our, in our videos. So yeah, good question. Yeah. By the way, did you notice in this book where it says that they left to go to the cave of treasures, which was below the garden? Yeah. Did you know that? that. That's yeah. what we're going to see later in this book, how the garden of Eden is actually floating off the ground by like 20 or 30 feet or something like that. Yeah. It's not actually, touched. we're going to bring that up. We'll bring that yeah. up in the next episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there's some some serious issues. Uh, Mr. Bear is, I guess this isn't a question. He says, put this put this book outside in the rain. Um, we're trying to be, we're trying to be respectful for people who yeah you know, who they they they're clinging to this book, and we love them too. And we just we was we want to dispel the notion that this thing is is legitimate and can be used as a gospel message of God. We want to really want to get people to open their eyes to how deceptive this book is and how blatantly obvious it is that it's not legitimate. Yeah. And the reason I pitched the idea of doing kind of a summary of the, of the remaining chapters and maybe even some big theological issues of book two um, is because Ken and I only have so much time guys. We, we barely had time to do season three. So like, it's, it's not something that we can just spend. Like if we were trying to just do even at 10 chapters, an episode, it would take us literally 21 episodes to go through book one and two, which would be the entire season. And we've got so many other books that we want to show you and present to you that we feel you'll be blessed by instead of being deceived by. So this is where we, we have to make an executive decision about how much of this book that we, we see serious issues with to actually present to you and how much to, to not, because we want to get onto stuff that, that uh, we know will bless you. But kingdom truth is saying he he's pitching Testament of Solomon. And I think that that was one on our list, wasn't it, Ken? Yes. Yes, I just yeah. mentioned that, the Testament of Solomon. Uh, interesting yeah. book. Very interesting book. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I was on the fence with that one. So I won't give anything away because we want people to watch, watch us kind of exegete it, I guess. So yeah, we might do that one. We could probably cover that in one episode too, Sean. So yeah. Uh, Stephanie Adara Rose is asking from chapter six, verse six through 10. We were, she says, who was y'all giving plagues to for repentance? That was Adam and Eve, wasn't it? Yeah. I, well, I think it, it seemed, it sounded like I'll go back to the actual passage real quick, but it sounded like commentary about um, how, let me go back to it real quick. It says uh, at the very end here, it says, but after they had sorely roused my anger, now the, uh, let me go up one more sentence. It says, for I am God, the creator who then, who, when I created my creatures did not intend to destroy them, but after they had roused my sorely roused my anger, I punished them with grievous plagues until they repent. So I think he's just stating a precept, like a general idea, because, um, that, you know, there is no one to put plagues upon at this point. It's just Adam and Eve. Um, and this, to me, I didn't even want to jump into this, but to me, like the only mentioning of this particular wording we get from like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy four and other places where it talks about when they disobey the covenant and they're scattered in other lands before they're scattered and they're still in their own land, all these plagues will come upon them. Um, and that's where it doesn't quite apply to Adam and Eve, but there could be a use use lucidage, excuse me, a loose usage <laughs> of this word plague being used in reference to Adam and Eve here. What do you think, brother? In short, yeah. yeah, I would agree. Yeah. yeah, it's it's again. This is why we said it's like these theological terms are being thrown around in this book without any foundation or actual relevance to the to the theology that's they're getting wrong in this book. So there's there's just a lot of issues that we're seeing with this book, guys. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, yeah, I don't see any more questions standing up. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right, guys, this has been a fun episode. <laughs> we really appreciate you being here. Uh, this has actually been a unique episode, Kim, because I don't think we've we've never really, uh, you know, given the fail stamp on any book yet. We have not. We have not. And I think we uh, I didn't want this show to be completely biased towards only looking at books that we consider to be scripture, because, you know, before Sean and I decided to do this show or before Sean pitched the show to me, um, we had been studying several of these books for years and um it, it just came to the point where like there needs to be also are asking the same questions they can look at something on a screen and, and follow along in the books and just get the answers that they're looking for because as we know we're in the end of days and, and knowledge is increasing and people's appetite for the for the word is is increasing as well so um yeah we thank you so much for joining us today um as always, please subscribe to Hanging On His Words if you guys haven't done that. If you wouldn't mind hitting the like button. I see that there's about 70 people watching right now. If you wouldn't mind hitting that like button, it helps out our, our algorithms, get stuff kind of shunted to the you know the different parts of YouTube land that hopefully other eyes can, can see this stuff. And, and uh, yeah, if you wouldn't mind doing that, that'd be great. Also, go to Sean's channel, Kingdom in Context. Subscribe to him if you haven't already done that. And he has a Kingdom Cast channel. You'll see these channels uh, on his uh, Kingdom in Context channel side recommended bar. Go follow those. Uh, New Jerusalem Media as well. And yeah, we, we just we need to get we need to get the gospel message of the kingdom of God and we need to get these uh, types of videos out to people so that uh, 
as the enemy continues to increase his tactics and his warfare in the world, we can combat it with with stuff like this and hopefully it'll be a good resource for people. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us this first episode. We hope to see you back here next Sunday on Honor of Kings. introduced sin into the world, and their act removed our ability to walk around unrestricted. No need to worry, though. Hanging on his words has got you covered. Literally. Find a link in the video description.